How you feeling? Good. Let's think about this message, and it got me thinking about both ends of the spectrum when you deal with people. How many of you know someone, you have a friend who has a tendency to be uh, pretty uh, insecure? They look at themselves with a lack of value. So wherever and whatever room they enter into, they do so with just this emulation of insecurity. Anyone know that person? I'm talking about no matter how you try to tell them they're valuable they just won't buy it okay no one knows that person well I know a few so I know a couple people like that I also know the other end of the spectrum and that person let's just say that uh, let's just say that no matter what room this person enters they believe that their opinion is the most important let's say her name is Karen and Karen enters a room and she's not gonna keep from sharing her opinion because hers is most important. The truth of the matter is this, no matter how we slice it, what we're looking at today in the message I've entitled, our belief informs our action. Whether you be the uh, emotionally needy or the entitled narcissist, your belief about yourself informs how you respond to the world. And so our belief informs our action. In fact, James says it, and I'm just going to read this to you. I don't want it on the screen. I just want to read to you how important this was to James. Because as we come to the close of chapter 2 and we turn the corner here, he's bringing us back to the theme of the entire book of his letter. And that is this. Verse 14, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? He's literally asking, is is someone who may claim to have faith in Jesus, but none of their life dictates by the actions they have that they, none of that matches up to said confession, do they actually have that faith at all? Or is their confession empty? What he's saying is that there's a distinction that we have to draw for ourselves between counterfeit faith and real faith. And our beliefs will always inform our actions. What we trust will inform what we do. So let me read the rest of these passages for you. Verse 14 of James 2, it says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose their brothers and sisters without clothes or daily food. If one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm, be well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, Faith by itself, not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. I'm going to give you two points today, and both points are questions. Okay? A lot of introspection today, a lot of reflection. The first point is this. What convictions do you, in fact, have? What convictions do you have? Alignment with Jesus will always mean an alteration of our action. So, James uses this passage, and I'm going to work backwards through these verses here. He actually goes straight to the heart of the matter by mentioning demons. And he says, demons know fully who Jesus is, and that knowledge beckons a response from them. They literally shake in fear or bristle at his name or the mention of his power. Yet this knowledge has never led them to trust him. I want to be pretty clear about this. Every demon roaming the earth today has more orthodox 
doubtlessly more orthodox than anyone in this room, more so than the most astute biblical scholars roaming the planet today or in the history of man because they preceded man. So they have a clear understanding of the one true God. They get the Father's plan to redeem mankind in Christ. They have witnessed and seen for, since the beginning of time the Holy Spirit's power on display. They have more knowledge of future events, of future millennia, heaven and hell, than you and I are aware today. And yet, with all this knowledge, they cannot and will not be saved. Do you hear me? None of this knowledge has led them to trust Him. None of this knowledge has led them to a place where they can be saved. And James is saying this to us, that we must be cautious of the same. John MacArthur said it like this, As in many other times in its history, the church today desperately needs to recognize and deal with the soul-damning idea that mere acknowledgement of the gospel facts as being true is sufficient for salvation. We must clearly and forcefully counter the deception and delusion that knowing and accepting the truth about Jesus Christ is equivalent to having saving faith in Him. In some church circles today, it seems to be held that merely not denying God is tantamount to trusting in Him. You see, what he's trying to hint at is this. Today and many people, even in Jesus' ministry, early on in His ministry, exposed themselves as superficial. See, they were willing to accept certain truths about Jesus, and they were excited to witness miracles, yet they were unwilling to trust Him as Savior and unwilling to submit or surrender to Him as Lord. So what I want to give you right now, really quickly, I want you to write these down, are three marking principles of a false faith. Three marking principles of a false faith include, number one, empty confession. That they confess something, but it's not backed up by any belief. It's empty. Number two, false compassion. They say they care about something, but nothing about their life shows you that. And third, shallow conviction. There's nothing within them that drives their deep compulsion. Nothing that's spiritual. So let me give you an example. How many of you have ever met a friend who says, well, we, you know, we just eat organic. We are farm to table. We are local, local, local. Whatever other dietary um, like buzzword that they can think of right now comes out of their mouth. How many of you know that friend? Okay, then you get in that friend's car and all you see is fast food wrappers everywhere. Right? McDonald's, Taco Bell. And in your mind, you immediately kind of go, this math isn't working. It doesn't add up. The confession you have is empty because the conviction you have is shallow and the compassion you have is false. And for those who are chasing depth, I want to encourage you. This is good. For those of you who are chasing depth, I've been around this my entire life. I myself am one who love to read and I love to attain knowledge. I'm an academic a bit. But let me encourage you. This is a challenge. For those chasing depth, that is good. Just make sure the depth you're chasing is depth of conviction, not depth of knowledge retention. Hello? Make sure that you're doing more than just attaining knowledge and consuming because Jesus built a ministry against that. So, true disciples surrender and will always show love. 
This isn't a call to perfection. We've, I've given you the illustration before about a soldier, someone who moves from civilian status to soldier status. It doesn't mean that they're expected to be perfect. It just means that something about their life intrinsically has changed inside and out. This isn't the slightest welcoming of systematic earning. This isn't legalism. James' statement isn't a guilt play or challenge for us to do better. It is simply a convicting reminder of how what we say we trust will every and always inform how we live. It implies that there's absolutely no way for someone to truly follow Jesus and to also not conform to his very likeness. That when we trust Jesus, the entire paradigm of our life shifts. We move from being the center of our universe and everything revolving around us in our opinion, Karen. We move from that being the center of our lives to the point where we make him the center. And, and like, like planets revolving around the sun, we are completely drawn into him, held captive by him, cared for and responsive to him, the very center of our lives, Jesus, Jesus Christ. And so Paul addresses this with the Areopagus in Acts 17 when he looks at a Gentile governing board and he says this, for in him we live move and have our very being, that Jesus in faith in him, like true faith in him, becomes your very axis. Paul wrote it again in 2 Corinthians 5. He said that we are a new creation because the paradigm has shifted. Our attention and focus is now circling around something completely different, him, no longer ourselves. So we're a new creation. The old is gone and past. It's done. So if we're truly his, then we would accept the humble way that Jesus came to us. And we too, in turn, would exude humility. If we truly trust his sovereignty, then we would never exude worry about his capabilities. If we were fundamentally believing that he is always good, then we may never question his very character or his competency. James is offering a practical example of what a changed life looks like. And it's equal to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. It's an illustration meeting the the faith that we say we have by meeting a personal, physical need of someone who cannot help themselves. It's saying, I couldn't help myself, so I needed a Savior. I needed reconciliation, so there, in turn, because I've been reconciled, I'll reconcile another. This is the ministry we have in His name to other people. When Jesus was asked in Luke 10 what it meant, how do you define neighbor? How do you define my neighbor? How do I answer that? When a Pharisee, an expert in the law, came to Jesus to challenge him, to ensnare him, Jesus gives practical example of his answering to that pharisaical question, who is a neighbor, in the parable of the Good Samaritan. It reads like this. This is, from Jesus' perspective, what it means to have faith in action, what this looks like. He says, in reply to what Jesus said, a man was, Jesus says this, a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers was stripped of his clothes, beaten, and then he was left for dead as they went away. Now, this man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho is a Jew. A priest, a Jewish priest, happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite priest, a Jew, one set apart that we pull the line from the Levite that we can find the high priest, 
When he came by, that same place saw him and passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan. Now, the Samaritan, in their minds, was lower than a Gentile. They had a prejudice against the Samaritan because they were half Jewish. They hated these people. As he traveled, came near this Jewish man, saw him, took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine upon them. He put the man on his donkey, brought him to the inn, and took care of him. The very next day, took out two denarii, gave it to the innkeeper, said, look after him. And he said, when I return, I will reimburse you any extra expense that you may have incurred. Verse 36, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of robbers? And listen to the response. Listen to the Jewish priest, the Pharisee, who cannot even bring himself because of his prejudice against the Samaritan to say the Samaritan was the one who did it. He says this, the expert in the law replies, the one who had mercy on him. So Jesus says, yes, so go and do likewise. I read a commentary once on this very issue, and a commentary on the Good Samaritan said this, that the priest and the Levite who passed by on the other side of the road cared more about what would happen to themselves if they were found to be helping the battered man, while the Good Samaritan cared more about what happened to the battered man if he did not help because he cared more about the man who was left for dead. Last week we talked about the royal law that James calls it, in loving our neighbor. And we're called to love them like Jesus would. So the second point I have for you today is the second question, and it goes like this. What actions have you taken? What convictions do you have that have spawned actions from your life? What actions have you taken? Reading on in James 2.20, it says, You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see, his faith by his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and was accredited to him as righteousness. He was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. Verse 26, a very important verse. As the body without spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. What he is saying in that last verse is this. When the soul leaves the body, you have a carcass left. You've got a stiff. And he says, a faith that is not accompanied by action because the belief that you say you have is not informing the things you do is dead. It's as lifeless as that carcass. James is saying that if you believe in it, you will literally do something about it. You will not be able to stop yourself from doing it. You will always follow your belief with your action. Much like in verse 16, when he references the needy asking for help, and we only acknowledge their need, do nothing to repair their physical need. That's, he says that's useless. These, these people literally cannot feed themselves. They're skin and bones. And we go, we'll pray for you. Hope you be well fed. But we do nothing to meet their own physical need. They cannot feed themselves and they come to you or to me for help and we do nothing to change their appearance. We do nothing to nourish them and fix their problem of malnourishment. There's no conviction that prods us. There's no compassion that is built in this experience. 
There's no action taken. So one should question, is this faith in fact real? Because when the dead can stand before us, unable to care for themselves, when we were dead before Jesus, unable to care for ourselves, and we trusted Jesus, but that doesn't evoke a response in us for the dead who cannot help, for the, help themselves, is our faith, in fact, authentic? Or is it counterfeit? He expands this thought by going to their patriarch, Abraham. Now, here's what you need to understand about Genesis 22. Abraham was given Isaac, historically, late in life, beyond his childbearing years. And in Isaac held all of the promise of the covenant to Abraham and the people Israel, that there would be, they would have the promised land, they would have descendants that would be countless. And all that is built in Isaac. So it could be said that Abraham could have loved his son Isaac to a deep and unhealthy point. Like, Isaac could have become his idol because through Isaac, all of these promises of God are about to happen. I was talking with Julie before the service, and we were talking about parents that have an unhealthy worship of their own kids. Have you ever met a parent who worships their own kid? Not in this room, just friends that you might have. And maybe they display some of that worship on social media. It might be said that Abraham had an opportunity to worship his own kid, to make Isaac an idol. And right here he's challenged to place Isaac, his potential idol, on the altar. God didn't refrain from asking Abraham to do the very hard thing. He didn't ask him to stop from doing the unthinkable thing. He called him out and he asked for Abraham to take Isaac, his only son whom he loves, the son of promise, that everything that is going to take place, that God has promised, is going to take place in him, and he asks for him to kill him now. So here's what, here's what Abraham believes, and this is what James is getting to. He believes that God is not a liar. And if God gave him Isaac when it was unthinkable, unfathomable, that this old man could have a child by a woman who's old and barren. And then all these promises are built in him that if God were going to take his life right now by the hand of Abraham, then he was going to perform a miracle because he believed he would either revive him or come up with some other way for the promises of God to continue. But his belief informed his action that he could sacrifice his son because his trust of God was paramount. And his relationship with him was driving him. Can I ask you a question? For those of us who have no conviction, I need us to consider this. Like, you have nothing within you that convicts you or prods you. Thus, no action of worship in response to that prodding of God. It is fair just math, right? to evaluate if there's no conviction, should we question whether the Spirit is present? And if the Spirit is present or not present, then we should question whether salvation is true. So where there's no conviction, it beckons the question of, is there a presence of the Spirit? And where there is no presence of the Spirit, it questions whether true salvation ever took place. 
Because right here, you see a man who is the patriarch of Judaism challenged to give away everything, not to worship the promises and not to worship the one that is the idol of said promises, but to worship the God who gave and can take away. And so, why did God call Abraham to do this? Why did God call Abraham to sacrifice his only son Isaac? What is God's perspective on the matter? And what is the faith of Isaac that who is in his 30s at this point and is a strapping young man could take out his ailing and decaying father at any point but willingly lays down and lets himself be bound? And Abraham is the one who taught Isaac about this God. What is the point in the picture here? Well, see, contextually, Abraham was also taught by pagan worshipers. He grew up in a time where he had learned from worshipers of pagan gods that the only way that God will give you favor and you evoke the favor of God is if you sacrifice your firstborn. If you sacrifice your firstborn, then God will open and bless your loins so that he'll give you a plethora of children. And he's already been promised that he'll have descendants that are mighty and innumerable, that they'll receive this land. So, it could be said that the enemy has opportunity to step in and twist his mind here and go, maybe those pagan gods were right. Maybe you are to sacrifice Isaac, and if he gave you a son with unfathomable odds, then he could do it again. But see, I believe the truth of the story is this. God asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac to prove one thing. That while you were taught that pagan, by pagan worshipers that you sacrifice the firstborn and I open the loins. I'm asking you to sacrifice your only son to see if you're obedient and love me, paramount, above anything in all things. And I want to prove to you that I am not that God. That I don't need for you to sacrifice your one and only son who holds the promise to me. I love you so much that I'm going to sacrifice my one and only son and bless all of you. I'm going to find your blessing through the sacrifice of my one and only son. I'm not going to call for yours to be given back to me. And so in Jesus, he blesses Abraham and he blesses us all. The beauty of this passage, though, is that Abraham, and this is what James is pointing out, Abraham does not deliberate and negotiate the unimaginable terms here. If you read it again, it says, We see his faith in verse 22, and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. Abraham was submitted not withholding from his, not withholding from his God and the Lord turned and credited to him as a righteous worship, as obedience, trusting, obeying the Lord. And then God called him friend. So here's what I want to encourage. How many of you know that God will call you to do the hard thing? Not always, but how many of you have ever been called to do something difficult? God does call us to do the hard thing, and he does so to evoke obedience that requires sacrifice of our own personal agendas and our own personal desires. That those would die, we'd sacrifice those to him. But that's only to call us closer to himself. That's only so that we would further move from our old life. How else can I say this? A continually disobedient life in Jesus is proof of false discipleship. A continually disobedient life is proof of false disciples, while conversely, an obedient life is proof of discipleship, true discipleship. 
So James in this passage is not speaking about action or deed for earning's sake. That's bad theology. It's wrong. What he is saying is he's speaking of actions that are born from evidence sake. They're born from your belief. You will always do what you believe. Dallas Willard said it like this. Jesus did not call us to do what he did, but to be as he was, permeated with love. And then the doing of what he did and said becomes a natural expression of who we are in him. Dallas Willard also went to say this. God has never been opposed to effort, but he has always been opposed to earning. 1 John 3 says this, Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. It is amazing to me, as we come to a place of close, it is amazing to me how many Christians that can shed tears over a play, or a TV show, or a movie, or be so brokenhearted over a tragedy that was out of their control, yet literally show no concern for the plight of those that they pass regularly, whether it be a neighbor or the person selling papers on a street corner. An acquaintance in real need will literally drive by and just assume that their needs will be taken care of by whoever will come behind us. We never engage and never show our actions because of a conviction that we were cared for when we could not care for ourselves. So we will seek to care for those who have literally said, I need help, I cannot care for myself. In conclusion, what convictions do you have, church? And thus, what actions have you taken? This morning, maybe God is reminding you of some idols in your life that need to be offered back to him. What are those idols and will you give them back? Are there places where your worship exposes that he is not paramount? Are there people that you are holding on to resentment against that he's asking you to let go and forgive? Are there places where you have messed up with people in your life that you've been shifting blame on, but you need to take some ownership? This morning, your belief will inform your action. And lastly, like he says here, there are people in your life right now, physically or emotionally needy, that are in your life, but you've yet to help them. Maybe this morning, that's what God is calling you to do. So Father, this morning, we just ask that we would be a people obedient like Abraham. Wouldn't debate you, even when the call seems unfathomable. We wouldn't deliberate, but we'd be a people that would be obedient to do and respond however you would call us. Father, we thank you that we, when we needed Jesus, you didn't withhold him. Father, you've left us in this world with people who need just as much. May we love them like he did. It's in Jesus' name we ask this. Amen.